Good morning, Boker Tov. I, uh, before even we do anything else, I like to, before the first time of the day in which I'm studying Torah, to say a bracha. So if you haven't already done this, or perhaps Davan Dahava Rabbah in the morning, and wish uh, you can say with me, Baruch Atah Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotav, V'tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah. Uh, it, is, it is just terrific to be in this place, and I will uh, introduce myself and give uh, people a chance to, to do that as well. I'm John Spiros of Adam, the rabbi at Temple Beth Abraham in Nashua, New Hampshire, which um, is not very far away from here. And um, I have been uh, doing that for uh, about two and a half years, and I have in the past been a teen educator uh, working in Jewish high school education, day school, high school education. And a particular interest that I have, inspired by my own teachers in Hebrew school, actually, in really moral and civic education. Um, so I've been trying to think about not only service learning, but really um, uh, engaging very deeply and spiritually young people, and now as a congregational rabbi, everybody in um, the spiritual side of, of being involved in, in civic matters and in tikkun olam. So um, in the, over the past decade, I've been part of this field of Jewish teen philanthropy, which is involved in getting um, teenagers uh, substantial amounts of money together and learning how to do how to do giving in the kind of organized and thoughtful and, and hopefully also spiritual way that a great Jewish foundation might do that in a, in a, in a formal way with the tools of philanthropy. Uh, and if you're not aware of that, uh, of that field and that movement and you're in teen work at all, it's something that you should uh, connect to through the Jewish Teen Funders Network, jtfn.org. Uh, and I'm also, as uh, New Hampshire is a fascinating place to be um, as a, in, a, in terms of a political environment. And uh, so I'm one of the founders of a group called New Hampshire Interfaith Power and Light, which is one of about 30 state-by-state state organizations that organize congregations, religious congregations of all faiths, to be very concrete actors in terms of the way we purchase power and um, pooling ourselves together, um, auditing and using actual synagogue buildings as examples of uh, green energy and conservation. And uh, But I've really been a learner in this area. I won't present myself as some uh, incredible expert. And um, so I want to say just before we even introduce ourselves that I, I imagine this as a, um, as a session that would be different depending on if we are, you know, people who are philosophy sorts who love to read books of philosophy or think about that or not. And um, as we go around, I'll ask you to identify yourself. And if you feel that you're in the, that we're overbalanced in the category you're not in, please feel free to go to your, to your next choice session in case this isn't what you were, in case this is what you were seeking. Um, and I say this is, you know, as I think many of the sessions here are kind of our, our work in progress, I um, decided to leap in because of my interest also in, in practical uh, tikkun olam and uh, I'm now teaching some of this stuff uh, in my prosdor class. We have a, a branch of the Hebrew College prosdor up in New Hampshire. So here's the story. Um, I have a congregant who, um, until recently, was a member of the state legislature in New Hampshire. And in fact, he's, he's an attorney. And he was the majority leader in the state senate. And uh, after he retired from his political job, the governor of New Hampshire appointed him last year um, to be the vice chairman of a of an advisory committee to present him with a report on the question of whether uh, New Hampshire should have casino gambling. And uh, so he came up to me at Kiddush at uh, Onag Shabbat one evening, and he said, uh, Rabbi, you know, what does, what does Judaism say, if anything, about 
this question. And, um, and I knew immediately that, um, especially as I say, living in New Hampshire, where, where the possibility of having some influence, you know, I must say, was, uh, was perhaps a little seductive, that um, I knew I should have an answer <laughs> to this. Um, and so I thought about um, how would I answer that question? And I thought that there, I realized that there were three different ways I could approach the question, two of which were obviously Jewish, but might not answer the question. And one way which may or may not be Jewish, but would answer the question. And, uh, and I recognized that what he was asking was basically a question about um, the individual and the community, the general welfare. Uh, we could raise a lot of money if we had casinos in New Hampshire against the harm that it would cause to a particular group of people, those who are, um, those for whom gambling is, 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 is an addiction or potentially an addiction. And uh, would it be our right to, um, to create this thing which would create a, a social good and a, and, a, and a set of individual harms? So I thought, well, how do rabbis address this question? Well, first there's the method of shelot uchuvot, of responsa, of, of responding to a halachic question, psak halacha. Um, and you go back into the literature of the uh, Talmudic tradition and look for, uh, has this question been asked before, or very similar questions, and can you, it's a case approach, uh, and sort of close to this situation, um, is there something we can, we can reason out? Um, the same way in many ways that a court uh, uh, would, would do that in a, in a contemporary setting. Um, but of course, the problem with this is that the question of uh, should uh, should casinos be erected um, is probably not a question which has been asked in halakha, not in the Middle Ages where they didn't have such things, and um, and uh, even these general kind of public policy questions like that um, probably weren't asked in the same way when the community was organized, not the way that ours is. And, uh, and furthermore, um, though there is a lot of contemporary halakhic writing in Israel about questions of public policy. It's different because Israel is, of course, an entirely or mostly Jewish society, and it might be more legitimate to ask, um, to sort of answer the questions in that way. And what they reason in Israel about questions like this of public policy might or might not um, apply in, in America in a different setting. So that's one approach, and it was my obvious, my go-to approach, but I didn't think it was going to answer the question. And the truth is there is there's some stuff, but, uh, but not a ton about gambling. The second is what one of my rabbis, I think, would have called, you know, etzes, you know, good, good advice. What are some great general statements about good things to do in the Jewish tradition? I don't mean to entirely make light of that, um, but uh, we talk about the value of people and their well-being and take care of yourself, and that will get you a certain distance, but we're talking about taking care of one group of people or another. Um, hard to know where to go with that. And um, now there are some principles that, uh, that might apply. Um, we have the principle of uh, don't put a stumbling block before the blind, which in halakha means um, if somebody has a blind spot, don't lead them in an area where they're going to stumble. So for instance, if, uh, if a friend of yours who you know has a gambling problem says, let's go out to dinner, um, you don't say, well, there's a great restaurant at Foxwoods, let's, you know, <laughs> let's go there, because you're, clearly you're, you're guilty of something if you would do that. You would be putting a stumbling block before the blind. But the question is, is this in the aggregate, can you really get any mileage out of a statement like that in and of itself? Um, it'll just beg more, beg the same question over again. So that kind of uh, drash, you know, kind of approach didn't seem to me that that would work either. But again, I immediately knew where I had heard a way of responding to this question. Um, and I knew that this was really a question about um, a philosophical question, and it was potentially uh, be an issue between two different types of, of political philosophy. And uh, so 25 years ago, actually this fall, I sat in Sanders Theater 
in, uh, at Harvard as a freshman taking this course called Justice, Moral Reasoning 22, Justice with, uh, with Michael Sandel. Uh, it has since become, as, you, as some of you have, have said, this uh, PBS series. Um, you can see it on iTunes, uh, iTunes Online as well. And, uh, and recently, the, uh, Professor Sandel put together this book, which is a, which is a great summary of, uh, sort of overview of the discussions of the course. And, um, uh, and I can tell you, just from personal experience, this affected me greatly. I can remember, as I've listened to the series, as it's been done the last couple of years, I remember down to many of the examples that he, that he gave. It was a very, very well done and affecting course. And it was really a course about the, the method of moral and political philosophy. How do we think about the, the basic concepts, the basic structure of these questions about the individual and the community? And um, so really what, uh, and, and the idea was that by, by thinking conceptually about them, we can get a better grip on what our own intuitions are and our opinions are and ground them. So, um, uh, and I was particularly interested, I guess, as I came there in questions of distributive justice, how do we, how do we say whether, what one person is entitled to or whether we're supposed to share, questions of tzedakah and things like that. And so anyway, I realized that the question about casino gambling is really between, um, between two types of political theories. Um, one which, which Professor Sandel um, refers to is utilitarianism, which was uh, really a modern philosophy invented in the, in the 1800s, associated with John Stuart Mill, an uh, English philosopher most prominently. Um, who says that the thing which is right is that which will bring, uh, in the aggregate, the greatest happiness or well-being to the greatest number. And uh, you just sort of calculate that up. And, uh, and whatever is the, the answer in the aggregate is the, is the right thing to do. Um, and the, on the other side of the question, the question of paying attention to the individuals who might possibly be harmed, is the philosophy that's associated with Immanuel Kant, who is a German philosopher of the 1700s who believed that... Um, each of us individually has, has an, an inherent and infinite value, and that the moral thing to do is that which recognizes the inherent worth um, and the uh, and inherent equal, equal moral worth and standing of every single individual person, and that the right thing to do is that which you could legitimately say uh, that you could uh, will that every other person should take that same action, just to, just to sum that up. So I said, great. So what am I going to do with this as a rabbi? Where does the, where's the Jewish place to go with that? And I would step back for one more place and say um, this question of if we have um, Jewish texts and Jewish insights and then we have a philosophical approach that's as rigorous and organized, how are they going to go together? So you might ask the question as, is a, is a philosophy you read out in Western philosophy, is it Jewish? Um, does it sit well with Jewish? Does it give language to something that we have in fragments in Torah? Um, you could ask, can we just use the philosophical labels to help us organize our Jewish thoughts, which we already have? Oh, Rabbi so-and-so is a utilitarian, and Rabbi so-and-so is a libertarian. That's another thing to do. And, um, or maybe, and this would be, and I don't know the answer to this, can we use, the, can we use Judaism once we've sort of studied the philosophy to, to critique and and clarify and even improve on the, uh, on the philosophy as we receive it. So, um, so there may be diff different questions to ask about this. So I put in front of you our, um, our number of sources. The, um, the top sheet is just a brief summary, and I, I don't want to read through it all. I think this is part of the, the take-home. If you're intrigued, you should definitely uh, read the paper and go watch the, go watch the course. Um, the book is very easy to read and is... Uh, 
is terrific. Um, the course is available either on iTunes or on uh, justiceharvard.org is the name of the site with the, the videos of the lectures and the readings. But, um, uh, but in general, I would, I would just say that one of the helpful things which Professor Sandel puts out is that there are three very general ways to look at, at ethics and morality. And his view is that um, moral theory is the question of what should I do, an action, an individual action. And, um, and it has application in political theory in what's kind of, how should we organize ourselves generally in a way so that people can perform more right action. And uh, he says there are three types of theories. One is, uh, one judges an action or a system based on consequences. Um, between two choices or two systems, the one that's better is the one that leads to, to better consequences. We're going to go right into that in a minute when we look at some texts. Um, the second type of philosophy uh, looks at contracts or consent. Something is right if we, if we agree to it or if it's based on an agreement that we have made, either that we would have made if we had thought about it or, or that we actually have made explicitly. Um, and so we don't have really any other obligations than the, one we take, the ones we take on. And the third is that, um, is that ethics uh, is grounded in, in character. Uh, if you cultivate the, the midot, we would say in Jewish terms, the qualities of a person, a person who has a good character, um, a virtuous person, will tend to do good actions. And the route to getting things right is to cultivate, uh, cultivate virtue in individuals or societies. And um, so with just those as uh, some points of reference, I want to turn to the first set of texts, which I um, have grouped in connection with the rubric of utilitarianism. And... So I think I never know in a group like this when we're together for you know one shot quick we're around the table we should be interactive but um, and I know at the same time I want to you know people want to make sure they get you know the max out of the hour so I think what I'll do is I'll read and explain and ask questions absolutely jump in to to interrupt so um, here is a summary of the uh, of the philosophy of utilitarianism taken from uh, John Stuart Mill's pamphlet this will orient us. The creed which accepts as the foundation of morals utility or the greatest happiness principle holds that actions are right in proportion as they tend to promote happiness, wrong as they tend to produce the reverse of happiness. By happiness is intended pleasure and the absence of pain. By unhappiness, pain and the privation of pleasure. So one thing which is uh, immediately clear, so happiness is kind of a neutral term, pleasure and pain. Uh, one thing which is enticing about this theory is that it, it doesn't make judgments about what you like or don't like or value or don't value. This is in some ways the moral theory of, of capitalist economics. Right? Whatever you happen to like, whatever we all happen to like, we aggregate in the market and that will tell us what we want. Uh, pleasure and freedom from pain are the only things desirable as ends. And that all desirable things, which are as numerous in the utilitarian as in any other scheme, are desirable either for the pleasure inherent in themselves or as means to the promotion of pleasure and the prevention of pain. Um, this may be a sort of controversial statement. I wonder if anybody just wants to comment on that. And, and what, what he means by pleasure is not necessarily feeling great at the moment. John Stuart Mill would have said if what you want to do is get high all the time, that's not going to lead you in the long term to, to pleasure and happiness. So um, that's actually going to lead you to pain. But um, but, it, but he's putting it in very um, stark terms, uh, that these are the only things desirable at hand. When we say something is good, it means it makes people happier on the whole. Is that, uh, I, I think it's clear how that might not make sense, but is it clear to anybody how that does make sense? 
Does it, can anybody vouch for the? Anybody want to vouch for this principle? Sure. Yeah, vouch for it. Yeah. Well, it? I mean, so long as you're, I don't know, it says it here, but mm -hmm. it's the opposite of pain. So if you're not, if you're aiming for happiness, and, and you're avoiding pain, I suppose in theory that would avoid pain to others also, because mm -hmm. you'd have to. Pain is not just something that's yourself. It's other people affect your pain, too. So I could see that as being a wider view. Mm -hmm. is, it, is it a reasonable rubric, um, pleasure and pain, to judge sort of general questions of, of policy? Yeah. It, strikes me as being, it, it, it strikes me as being about as complicated as, as uh, any other moral system in that the, the evaluation criteria are almost impossible. Mm. So, um, because of the because because he he's using the the as a means to promoting as well as just the mm -hmm. direct now uh, criteria, it, it's it's almost impossible to to, to predict. In fact, it, it's so prone to the law of unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that's uh, I think that's true. He he tries to give some metric here in the next sentence of two pleasures, if there be one to which all or almost all who have experience of both give a decided preference irrespective of any feeling of moral obligation to prefer it, that is the more desirable pleasure. So he says, you know, forget about what you've been taught, about what you're supposed to like or don't like, if people generally prefer one thing to another. Um, I would say in the defense of this principle, it is the basis of, of all the kinds of, you know, it's, this is cost-benefit analysis, and we do this all the time in trying to judge the, the, the benefit or the value of a project or anything, whether it's in the public policy or, or organization. So, um, uh, so here come here come some Jewish texts which speak to this, and um, I am indebted to. If you're interested in this topic, another book which you definitely should um, should get your hands on is called uh, "Healthcare and the Ethics of Encounter: A Jewish Discussion of Social Justice." Lori Zoloff is a professor at um, Northwestern um, in I think in ethics and religion, and um, this is a tremendous book. And I gave you the casino gambling situation, but. But the issue of healthcare and the allocation of, of healthcare is really one of the other great um, settings in which we have this question. So, all right, so this first source is from the Tosefta. The Tosefta is, um, uh, is contemporary more or less with the Mishnah, it's the earliest of the rabbinic sources. And um, so the situation is this Si'a shel b'nei Adam, a group of people, Jewish people, I think, just in the context, Jamrulahem Goyim, that a, uh, are. Uh, accosted by a group of non-Jews who say to them, "Tnu lanu echad mikem benahar gehu, veimlav hare anu horgin et kulchem." Give us one of you, and we will kill him. And if not, we're going to kill all of you. That's the situation. So yehargu kulan vialim serulahen nefesh achat mi Yisrael. The halacha is they should all be killed and they should not give one soul among Israel over to them to be killed. Aval, im yichduhu lahem, if they single somebody out, kigon sheyichdu l'sheva ben bichri, yitnu lahem v'al yehargu kulan. But if the, if the bandits, let's call them, single out one individual, as uh, sheva ben bichri, and we'll talk about him in a second, was singled out to be given over and killed, you should give that person and, um, and not let everybody be killed. 
Xavier yes. refers to if they designate, is it the bandits? Yes, the bandits, the bandits, yes. The group who is attacking you um, say, you know, give us Plony, then yes, you should, well, Plony in the manner that, so we have to interpret that sentence, but just on the face of it. So what is, uh, is there, what's the sense of this, of this uh, halacha here? What's the difference, really? The bad guys get to make the choice. The other way around. You don't have to make the choice. Yeah. It's not up to you to make the choice who, who you're going to give up. Mm -hmm. They do. And, uh, but why not say, it doesn't matter whether they, sing or whether they say, give us one or give us her. Why aren't they the same situation? Why isn't it? Because it's different to tell, you know, go to a group of people and say, you single out one person, or someone from, from the outside and say, you know, we need one spot here. Mm -hmm. So it's different to say, okay, we'll go pick someone that goes out, and then have that person say, okay, you go out, and then we make a decision. Either, so they already made the decision for us, so it's better to have that person out rather than, rather than having you're, you're participating in putting that person to death in, in, in one instance. Mm. But if you, um, isn't it the same if I, if I say that, uh, uh, let's send Andrew out, if it, you know, or let's just all die, aren't we participating, aren't we participating that way too? Or that does seem to be the issue, yeah? Well, doesn't this eliminate the, the Jewish group from having to participate at all? Um, then there is taking the moral responsibility away from them by saying we want this guy. Well, actually, it's interesting. Oh, really? It's not really, and just you know, and as I, I think about it, and um, this is uh, this is in many ways the the uh, ghetto situation in World War Two, where um, where it's uh, you know you you give us this group of people, you designate. Or we're telling you which people you make sure they show up to be deported. So it's it's a little it's a little vague. But I think we've identified the issue. You, you'll take this back when you study it and teach it and, and hash this out. But the issue is is um, uh, is whether the whether not participating in the death of one person overrides the quantity of people who would be saved if you would give up one person. So would, would it change the principle if it was something positive, like you said you were going to give that person a million dollars instead? Or does that I, I think that it would. So the texts that are that are here in front of us deal with the with inflicting with inflicting harm. So it's a good question, and I'm not sure, um, uh, you know, you uh, if you, in other words, can you single one person out for a great benefit, um, who may or may not deserve it? That's that's interesting, and I don't know. So, so I would judge it that that um, that a decision is made either way. I mean, the group can make a decision not to volunteer or not to uh, not to be in agreement with the hostile groups. And I think that that's the more moral decision, in my in my judgment. And and, and um, I mean whether or not that 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 falls in line with Mill. So you're saying there's a third option in the that the Tosefta doesn't provide, which is even if they designate somebody, oh. don't um, don't. Uh, yeah. You're disagreeing, disagreeing with the Salaf. I, 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 I yeah. absolutely disagree. With All right, good. So good. That's that's so. Um, yeah. Let's talk about Shabbat Ben Rechu for a second.